Hello and welcome to Gecko, 30 Years Fighting for Forests, a series that looks back on the wins, losses and lessons of a 30-year campaign to protect the forests of East Gippsland in Victoria. Throughout the series, you'll hear conversations with campaigners from the Goongra Environment Centre, Gecko, in East Gippsland, as well as sounds from protests and actions on the ground. This series was made by Fiona York in 2023 to mark the 30-year anniversary of Gecko and was produced in the studios of 3CR Community Radio on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation in Nam, Melbourne. Hi, my name is Fiona York and I first got involved in forest campaigning in 1993 when I was 20 years old and I've been involved in Gecko, the Goongra Environment Centre, ever since. This year is the 30th anniversary of the Celebrate and Defend Festival that first started Gecko, and I wanted to bring everyone together to reflect on why they got involved, what it meant to them, and the wins and the losses, as well as the lessons that we can learn for other campaigns in the future. On today's episode, you'll hear from a conversation I had with the early crew from 1993, Georgia Snowball, Amelda Eames, Anthony Kelly, Louise Matheson, Marita Wallace, Gavin McFadgen and Zenny Ferntree. We talk about how Gecko first started in a paddock in Goongra, the early forest blockades, the city campaigns and how and why they first got involved. I'll let them introduce themselves. I'm Zenny Ferntree and I first got involved with East Gippsland in um, 93. Um, I had been a little bit involved with Friends of the Earth and somebody said, oh, there's a party on, you would really like it, you should go. And I'd never been to anything like that ever before. I'd been, I wouldn't say I was a greenie, but I was aware of environmental stuff and um, had been involved in a little bit of like animal activism. But yeah, and so I went to the very first Celebrate and Defend and um, hung around for quite a few years, maybe 10 or so. Yeah, so after the first Celebrate and Defend, that um, lots of people hung around and there was a summer of actions. The land that we were staying on, the, after three months, the owner contacted us and said, you were only meant to be here for three weeks. So we all moved up to the office that Friends of the Earth had rented for the media and office stuff for the summer campaign. And um, that's the place that became Gecko. Cool. It was, um, there was a few people in and out, but there was five of us in the room at the time. It was uh, Rain's idea. And there was, so there was me, myself, Rain, uh, John Flynn, and two people from NIFA who, I don't think they ever came back actually, but Kim and Vanessa. So that's how Gecko was born. Uh, hi, I'm Gavin McFadgen. Um, I first got involved um, in forest campaigning and direct action in East Gippsland in 1993. Um, I think I got involved through, uh, I was a member, an active member of the environment group at Monash University. And I remember um, people from Friends of the Earth and I think also from the Wilderness Society getting around to all the environment groups in the universities to rally troops to come to this big event, this big um, forest camp that was turning into direct action in the summer of 1993-94. So um, uh, I, would, I was still at university, obviously. I was third year uni, so I was 22 at the time. Um, and then decided to rock up to Friends of the Earth Forest Network meetings, which were on Monday nights at Friends of the Earth on Smith Street and Collingwood, um, and kind of took it from there and got actually quite involved uh, with Louise and um, others at Friends of the Earth Forest Network in starting to plan how to make this big event happen in the summer of 93. Okay, I'm, I'm Anthony Kelly. I got involved in East Gippsland first, I think, in 1990 during the Brown Mountain, the, the campaign to save the national estate areas up there. A whole bunch of us had sort of come in through Rainforest Action Group, basically, which was a big campaign in the city. We were blockading timber ships in the era in solidarity with the Penan people in Sarawak in Malaysia who were blockading their forests and the, the sentiment throughout the 
throughout the group was that maybe we should be doing some local forest campaigning work as well whilst we're doing all this international stuff. So uh, a huge um, mob of us got involved in southeast up in New South Wales and also in East Gippsland. And so, yeah, the Brown Mountain blockade and actions, they were sort of mass walk-in type actions in 1990 where I think it was 22 got arrested in one day and then the two days later about 46 people got arrested so they were quite large and they they also involved some jail sits as well. So, you know, about 20, 20 people at a time um, refusing bail conditions and going inside and being taken to Melbourne and doing the, the whole thing at Pentridge and the Remand Centre. Um, and I think I was living at, in um, uh, in Goonga at the time for about a, for six months or a year before the campaign, I think. So... I think, yeah, feeling more affinity for the place up at the plateau, but also, yeah, and getting to know the place more. But, yeah, I, I do remember the setup of the Sellers Road blockade. And, and from memory, it was the first tripod in the tripod actions in Gippsland. That was my memory that there was a whole bunch of NEPA, NEPA people. And a few of us have had had been up the, the north coast and done various Wild Cattle Creek and other blockades further up. I think I'd been to Fraser Island by that stage or Kugari. And um, NIFA brought back, literally brought down blocker, you know, tripod technology down to Gippsland, and um, we would we did some um, trainings in might have been Kerry Seaton's paddock, and um, yeah, and I think the Sellers Road blockade might have been the first one where we saw tripods. So um, I'm Louise Matheson. Um, I first got involved. I think it was. Around, in East Gippsland around 1992, um, I was 20 years old. So the year before that, I'd um, taken a year off from university and I'd gone travelling with friends and I had ended up at Forest Blockades with Northeast Forest Alliance and others. And possibly I met Marita there, mm. I think, yeah. yeah. We met at Mummel. Yeah, Mummel Golf. That was amazing. Um, and... Yeah, I suppose my eyes were open to the whole world of um, forest campaigning and environmental campaigning. Um, uh, but then for various reasons, wanted, needed to come back to Melbourne and thought I should find out what was going on in Melbourne and someone sent me to Friends of the Earth um, or I'd heard of Friends of the Earth um, and heard about the East Gippsland uh, forest situation down there. Um I think at that time, so Anthony talked about the Brown Mountain blockades. Um, there'd been the East Gippsland Coalition that had been really active in the late 80s. Um, but there was a lull where things, for various reasons, not a lot had been happening in East Gippsland for a while. And um, I think a few of us put our heads together and thought, what well, we really need to, you know, fire this up again. Um, and wouldn't it be great if we could get those people from the Northeast Forest Alliance to come down and share their knowledge and their success and what they'd been doing. Um, and the best way to do that was to put on a big party, the festival. Um, and I think also around the same time, people at Friends of the Earth put us in touch with campaigners who'd been involved in East Gippsland Coalition, people like Anthony, the kind of previous generation. Um, so we got to learn a lot from them. Yeah, and we we planned the the big forest festival um as a way to kick start the campaign again after a bit of a lull and to get new a new kind of generation and new people involved it um the house the gecko office um yeah. when we were planning all of this i think jill redwood was understandably not that keen in having the whole thing run out of her lounge room and suggested that maybe we should talk to someone who had an ha empty house up the road. Um, and she put us in touch with the people that owned that property. And I ended up, my name was on the lease. I just leased it um, for, I think, about six months or so. But it was only ever meant to be like the temporary office. It was just going to be where we sent, did our media. We needed someone with a phone, somewhere with a phone line, somewhere to send media releases, a kind of comms hub. Um, it was only ever meant to be short term, but then Rain and Zinni and John and everyone else wanted to keep it going. I remember being like, yeah, that's really great, guys, but one of you has to put your name on the lease because I'm out of here. And I think that's when I was um, heading to Queensland and those guys took over. 
Hi, I'm Marita Wallace. I was about 22, I guess, when Gippsland started up. So I'd spent the previous couple of years blockading mainly in sort of mid-north coast New South Wales. So met Louise at Mummel, um, also blockaded at Wild Cattle Creek, um, Killacranky, Carai, a few other places, also down in Tassie at the end of 92, start of 93, and then back to New South again. Um, so I'd heard, because I always came back and forward to Melbourne, so I knew that there were some things going to happen in East Gippsland. I remember Louise doing a recce with you, probably about October 93. We did a recce, went up to, there was a blockade happening in the southeast as well. We went there and then went back through Gippsland and just checked out a few places. Sorry, we connected um, with the southeast New South Wales folks. Yeah, mm -hmm. so sort of the NEFA crew were aware, then went to southeast and then just sort of started having a look around as well on the way back. Um, by that stage, I guess I was really burnt out. I was like seriously burnt out. And I think in hindsight, like really quite depressed and I think grief stricken is almost the only word I can use to describe the kind of pit I was in about just witnessing the destruction that, that we were seeing, like it really absolutely gutted me. And so when Gippsland was starting up, like I was really, um, I kind of, so there was the idea of the office and the idea of we're needing a phone, this and that. And I thought, well, I can do fundraising to, to, to fund that so that a campaign can happen and we can get funding for it. So me and my sister and a few others, we organised quite a few events and in a pretty short space of time, I don't know, maybe it was a couple of months, we raised about six grand, which at that time was huge. So I think that went towards rent, phone bills, blah, 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 just trying to get things set up so that we weren't running on on zero, which is what all the, like, just the, you know, cannon fodder actions that I'd done in New South were, you know, um, I mean, NEFA itself was extremely organised and did a great job, but, um, but yeah, just trying to get uh I, I just saw my role really as just trying to fund it so that other people who uh it could could sort of start doing what needed to be done there um i was at the festival as well so trying to help with setting up the kitchen that sort of thing um and you know trying to stop giardia outbreaks and stuff like that um so yeah i was at the festival i was at sellers road for the first part of that so i was probably there for a few months and then I just I, I just bowed out so that was where I sort of, of pulled out of it after that just did a bit more fundraising and, and that was it. My name's Melderine. Yeah so I was about 21 in 93 um, and before that doing a bit with the Wilderness Society and then going to East Gippsland was you know life-changing. It was something that just set me up for what was important in life, in meeting incredible people um, and having an opportunity to uh, live a lifestyle. So I lived out in, um, in Goongra for a couple of years after the festival and just felt like I had found my people and found my um, something that was worth, um, worth putting my, you know, my, I was going to say body on the line. It wasn't quite that dramatic, but, you know, putting putting everything on the line for, um, and it was an important time and it was amazing. My name is Georgia Snowball. I was still at school. Well, I would have been, I'm saying 16. Izzy and I were at school in Sydney. We were going uh, through the Glebe markets. We heard about some Vibe Tribe parties. And I think the word about the forest came to us through music and going to big uh, doofs or small ones, just community music. Yeah, basically um, left home uh, to come and uh, save the forest. <laughs> but I did do a lot of work um, in the end, ended up doing quite a lot of uh, cooking. That was kind of one of my things, keeping the fire going. And yeah, I kind of uh, found my people too. And yeah, it was totally a life-changing experience for me and met a whole new family. I have this recollection, I don't know if it's true, of me and Imelda driving in Fanny the Troopy and picking up you and Izzy hitchhiking on our way back from the Eden Chip Mill. We hitched and I really remember because I had a pair of um, 
Doc Martens and I lost one of them getting into the car. But yeah, you just, yeah, we hitched from Sydney and yeah, you guys picked us up and yeah, that was it. You were stuck with us, basically. (laughs) Hi, my name's Izzy Brown and I first got involved with Gecko when I was about 16 back in the 90s. I'd first heard about the campaign in East Gippsland at the Forest Embassy on the lawns of Parliament House in Canberra, where I met a whole lot of crew that had come up from East Gippsland, all wild, woolly and feral. And uh, I think I met some of the most notorious characters there, perhaps um, Ginkgo and Flinny and Max. <laughs> and, yeah, they told me to come on down. So they planted the seed um, that, yeah, stuff was happening in East Gippsland. But it wasn't until I went to Confest later that year that I somehow ended up in the back of a Melder's Troopie and went on the long, very squishy overnight journey to Goongra. I think we broke down a couple of Ks from the um, actual Gecko headquarters and uh, had to walk <laughs> through the night <laughs> to get there in the end because there was no way we could all actually sleep compacted and tangled like spaghetti in the back of the Troopie. So there's the East Gippsland Forest Alliance, which from memory was the Wilderness Society, uh, Friends of the Earth Forest Network, Concerned Residents of East Gippsland and Environment Victoria, or maybe they were still called the Conservation Council of Victoria. So they were, that was like the four big, big green groups that, um, although they weren't all that big, um, that formed that alliance. And then, of course, there were all the people who turned up on the ground to do the work. Um, there was a lot of um, art and negotiation to keeping the big, the four groups in the tent and listening to what the people on the ground wanted to do. And I think that's a big role that, yeah, Anthony and other people played was weaving it all together. There was definitely tensions between the big environmental groups, the city-based groups, and the, what was happening, what was the politics that were developing on country in the in the camp in the base camp in Goongra, but also um, as the blockade um, camps got established. I remember that tension and dynamic between the blockade camps, the base camp, and then the city offices, um, where there was often a misalignment or media releases going out that didn't reflect the reality on the ground or the blockades taking initiatives that weren't approved by the, the city offices. And there was tensions over how we engaged with the industry and the workers and the mills, the politics of um, the blanket ban on native forest logging and what that meant in terms of building alliances with timber workers and um, sympathetic mill owners and the you know against the the Harris Dye Shower the mill, the the wood chipping mill. So there was a lot of sort of um, inter group dynamics over those years that. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're played out on a day-to-day basis, basically, but that sort of stress and tension between the, the blockade camps actually doing the blockade and the city people doing the advocacy and the lobbying and the putting out the media releases. And I think Gecko really filled a bit of a, a hole in that, filled a gap. It was a local organising hub that hadn't existed before, aside from Jill and a few people who were locals doing a, a lot of work by themselves. Gecko sort of brought the advocacy and lobbying sort of centre to Goongra itself. And I think that was really important. It seemed like it was a a natural progression of the campaign at the time to have that organising hub local rather than, you know, hour away in Orbost or six hours away in the city. Yeah, I remember that being a really big deal. And I think even sometimes Gecko played a role to kind of de-escalate tensions between the group sometimes in that way. Like I remember that tension too, Anthony. But I also remember despite that overall a lot of like cooperation between the groups as well. Like I was hearing some, you know, people get peeved off now and again, but I never saw sort of communication excommunicated or or organisations pushed out of discussions. Certainly not towards Friends of the Earth Forest Network at the time, which I which seemed to be more of like a an urban direct action hub to complement the regional direct action hub. The other 
tension in some ways, but it was also kind of exciting was this theory of change around the export wood chip licenses, right? So a difference back then was that the federal government, while state governments controlled forest management, export wood chip licenses were being issued every year by the federal government in about December. So there was all this, always this kind of crescendo of direct action heading up to the issuing of these um, wood chip licenses which led to direct action in the forest, but also out at Eden. And I remember several trips out to Eden. This was before the regional forest agreements took that decision-making opportunity away from federal governments and a big opportunity for us to campaign on. And that was all handed to the states. But back then, a political focus, much more than we could probably recollect in the la- in recent years, was a big focus on the federal government because they had a much bigger decision-making power over the future of our forests. You know, in the last 20 years, it's really been around um, campaigns directed towards state state governments. Yeah, I'd echo and add to that. Like, I think there was absolutely tension, but there was also a lot of goodwill. And I think, um, I think all of us kind of believed in principle that we were more powerful if we could work together, but that's easier said than done. And um, I think that Gecko really filled a role of like the people on the ground in East Gippsland organising themselves and having more of a voice in those bigger spaces and being a conduit between what was happening on the ground and what was happening in Melbourne and what was happening in Canberra. And I'd just add to what Gavin said that the Forest Embassy, do you guys all remember the Forest Embassy, the huge camp um, on the lawns of Parliament House in Canberra? Really, it was kind of the next big thing we all did after this. Um, and that brought together people from northeast New South Wales, from, you know, NEFA and southeast New South Wales. We haven't had people coming over from WA. Um, and that was because of that focused on the um, export wood chip licences. And the other process that happened out of that, like because of all this pressure, we were able to create the, the federal government started saying, oh, well, we'll exclude some old growth forests. And we had this idea that, you know, the best bits of forest would be protected from wood chipping and then long debates about which were the best bits and yeah we we kind of went from east gippsland to canberra um but gecko kept the fires going in east gippsland five weeks after resources minister david bedall triggered the crisis by ignoring calls for the protection of 1300 areas the prime minister sought for the second time to calm the waters today the commonwealth has identified 509 such areas or coops and we'll do everything in this power to ensure their protection. With all of the wood chip export licenses issued by Mr. Bedall now vulnerable to legal challenge, Mr. Keating. The moments when every year we would get these wood utilization plans, we get these bloody massive A1 bloody maps and like forensically pour over them. And from that work out where the logging was going, what roads were the most accessible or not. Um, and then kind of making strategic decisions about based on accessibility, based on the conservation values of those forests, based on how close they were to existing protected areas and a whole range of other reasons, which ones that we would choose um, to do direct action in. Um, and I remember long hours in Gecko, like pouring over WAPs, as they were called at the time, um, trying to work out... Um, which forests, tragically, in some ways, of all the coops that were there, which ones we would try to protect. And we were also using National Estate back then a fair bit too because of that 1990 campaign where National Estate was a big deal, like National Estate Forest. And so looking at the WAPs and working out what had the high conservation value, what had the old growth, which had a block report, because not all of them had block reports, and what was National Estate. And they were kind of the criteria about blockading. Plus, if there was one road in, made it easier. We always prioritised the pieces that were butting onto the existing national parks. So that escarpment off the edge of the plateau, the plateau was already in, in the park, but the valleys and the edges of it, not so much. And yeah, incredibly beautiful forest, enormous. It's like I've never seen more beautiful forest ever since. So we never had to blockade Ellery Creek, but that, that was actually the place that we thought we would have to blockade. Um, and Anthony, Kelly and Emma and a few other people and I like dug dragons into the road around Ellery Creek. Then um, the focus shifted to Sellers Road and other places. Around the festival time, yeah, there was fern tree 
and there was Ellery. I can't remember the third one. It might have been Ostrigans because that yep. was, yeah, mm. that was around pretty early. So, but Nicella's Road was when a few months later, that mm. action that Anthony was talking about earlier when, um, yeah, Nefa basically came and taught us the how to build tripods and then they taught us how to make dragons. <laughs> We went yeah. to Kabon that following summer as well. Oh, yeah, Kabon yeah, was that because I remember fl- I remember switching between Hensley and Kabon. I thought because they weren't that far apart. They were um, incredibly beautiful bits of forest. They were mostly up in the plateau. Yeah, they were really high. And I think as a as a as a basically a child seeing that forest was the life changing experience, and and thinking that it was under threat. Because I'd never seen anything like it in my life. The other kind of road trips I remember in terms of negotiating were um, the trips down to Lake Tyres to go and talk to Trish Loners, uh, Robbie Thorpe and others at Lake Tyres who had been seeking, I guess, consent, permission to um, engage um, in the direct action at the time as well, which were like, incredible experiences. You're listening to Gecko, 30 Years Fighting for Forests, a series that looks back on the wins, losses and lessons of a 30-year campaign to protect the forests of East Gippsland in Victoria. The 1993 festival resulted in a lot of direct action in the forest, but it also sparked direct action against export wood chipping at the local mills, including Dye Shower in Eden, New South Wales, and Bob Humphreys Mill in Can River, Victoria. We went very, very early in the morning, like really the middle of the night, um, from Goongara down to, I'm pretty sure it was Can River, um, to a mill outside of Can River, one of the biggest mills that we knew was supplying predominantly wood chips um, up to Eden, wood chip mill. And we had people come down from Southeast New South Wales as well. And we met there and people, we'd made these Ned Kelly costumes because we wanted to be, you know, the, the bush ranger standing up for the bush and tap into these ideas of Australian rebelliousness and standing up for what's right and being the underdog and all of those things. And um, so we had a couple of people dressed up in Ned Kelly outfits with um, lock-ons. And when the first truck came into the wood chip, came into the mill to get filled with wood chips, we, the people dressed as Ned Kelly locked onto the front of the trucks. We had camera men embedded with us from like channel nine and channel seven that was one of the crazy things about it we were doing this action and we had the cameramen and the reporters like hiding in the bush with us and we all ran out in front of the truck um the ned kelly's locked on i think it was a really effective media stunt because it placed us as the underdog standing up for the bush and standing up for what's right and um we also showed that those logs coming out of the old growth forest were being turned into wood chips was a great day the media attention we got at those actions in those times was just amazing like to be at forest protests and to see like choppers television crew choppers like chopper into the blockade in east gippsland i mean the the kind of media attention we were getting at that time did i think kind of spur us on that we were being kind of relevant and we're out in the middle of nowhere but we were getting a lot we're looking back and you go through the media clips, we're getting a lot of media for the actions we were doing out there at that time. I remember the senator, um, Senator Devereaux from WA was flying in in a helicopter um, to be part of one of our actions. And at the time, I think, Marita, you were in the kitchens. Anyway, we were running low on food and we called to our friends in Canberra to go to the food co-op and stock up some boxes of food and put it on Senator Devereaux's helicopter. And I still remember the Senator coming off the helicopter holding two big buckets of tofu. (laughs) And this was a key reason why we needed the Gecko office was because we had to have a landline technology hub. Like the radios were run out of Gecko. The fax that we used to send the media release went out of Gecko. The only telephone we had was in Gecko. So, um, yeah, it was partly the different technology that meant we had to have that office. Also, do you guys remember trying to do joint media releases with Twiz and Jill and Foe and having to send those faxes through and they'd always come back <laughs> changes and all shocking. Absolute shit show. 
because the fax has been on these long kind of rolls, remember? And it was just pouring out onto the table at Gecko, going through bloody, bloody spelling mistakes from just nuts that time. Um, I think, Marita, you were talking the other day about how um, Gippsland, your memories of Gippsland were so many meetings, these really long meetings of, of consensus, but how, um, how important uh, that was for the campaign, from my recollection anyway, that there was this idea of consensus and this idea of the meetings might go on for a bit, but everyone is invited and everyone has a say and everyone has... Um, a role to play if they want in in um, the discussions and the decisions and the the things that are playing out. Mm. Um, and I think that that was something that you were doing a lot, Anthony and 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 Louise in that in that space. Well, consensus is based on trust and respect, hey. So so it had to, it had to rely on that just the the trust and respect that we had for each other. But also, it's it's so hard to have consensus between a remote blockade camp and a base camp and Gecko and the city offices. So, yeah, that that's just that communication tree as well. Like without doing it over phones and radio, um, and then traveling to get to share information. Yeah, the, just the the information trans transmission was just. The lines were so um, stretched at times, and yeah, because uh, we didn't we didn't have phones. We had like yeah. uh, like yeah, it's like you uh, teleferral. That's how things get around, because <laughs> <laughs> we didn't have phones, and or you go and stay at someone's place, and you know, and then messages get mixed up from here to there. But there was the um the message book. Remember the message book to like because you know oh there's things that we need to. Tra you know, transfer from back from gecko out to the blockades and back again, and people's doll forms. <laughs> <laughs> there was a little booklet of like expectations and do's and don'ts at blockade. I thought we did pr actually produce something that was a bit of a guide for new people around like consensus decision making and non-violent direct action and what it meant. Yeah, I've still got one of them, a campaign handbook. And legal legal information, do you know, police powers, that sort of stuff. I remember there being it really hard to communicate with the blockade camp and the gecko camp and then Melbourne. And there would be this kind of paranoia. We, we, we had police intelligence officers at the base camp at Kerry Seaton's place at Brown Mountain. So they yeah. yeah, they were definitely infiltrating the campaign. We may have been paranoid, but we were right. There were there were boycotts in this in the town in um, in Goongra. It was you often get re got refused service if they spotted you as a greenie, refused petrol. I remember there being shots fired from passing car windows. A few few people on their way between Goongra and Orbost had um, shots fired at them. I had things thrown at me in Orbost. Terry mm -hmm. and I, mm -hmm. and got right, run off the road and. Wow. I was um, assaulted in Marlow by the some of the Brunt brothers when um, Emma and I had taken a, a weekend away for some reprieve. Um, um, yeah, got assaulted at the Marlow mm. pub. Mm. I think, was there like a, a safe house in Orbost? Because I remember um, oh, yeah. Kiana Oku and Michelle all there, they all had kids under two years old and I remember they were staying there and it got they got fully um like terrorized basically one night um staying in that they were sort of on their way from Gippsland back to Melbourne I think um yeah I think windows were smashed all and it was just three women with three like kids mm. under two yeah mm. I, I found myself quite frustrated by all the antagonism and the and so forth because it was part of the way in which we were gearing up the campaign but there were so many opportunities for alliances with the with elements of the timber industry and that it was just being used the um the 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 big parts of the industry were just using the workers against us um so effectively um it just was a you know in seemingly intractable battle but 
there were mills who were pissed off at die shower who were who were seeing all these d you know d and e grade logs being taken up to the chip mill where they could have been sawn locally there was um there was all these avenues for um good alliance building that could have happened and um but yeah the the strategic differences between some of the groups but also just the you know the fact that we were all city you know largely city based greenies who'd come up to the forest for the first uh, first time and um it was hard to find that common ground with local the local timber industry and the timber communities and that's you know it's still an issue Although I think you did lay the groundwork for us to keep doing that for years. Like that was always front and centre, um, was trying to build those alliances because you brought that philosophy to the early organising, I think. The um, Orbost Exhibition Centre with the wood turning course, we all ran, we all did the wood turning course, learned how to make high value products out of the timber and Gecko sponsored the Orbost Wood Design Exhibition yeah, all of that kind of work in trying to show that there wasn't just wood chipping came from those early kind of conversations. I think it still took twenty something years, but yeah. always this idea that you know wood chipping was the common enemy, but yeah, um, wasn't enough to cross that divide. Yeah, so the first blockade I went to was Sellers Road. The loggers were camped um, just up the road from us, and. Uh, we thought we'd go and give them some entertainment. I remember doing fire shows and like weird like kind of cabaret sessions and like trying to teach them how to do the Melbourne shuffle and all kinds of things, um, attempting to befriend them and convince them to change sides. I think they found us amusing but annoying. And um, yeah, it was always some, some funny kind of interactions. You know, there was a lot of aggro and, you know, that kind of stuff as well. But I wasn't really caught up in the counter blockades, but I was caught up in a car chase on the way to Sellers Road when I was in my 1968 Toyota Corona with um, Linny, um, a guy called Damien Sullivan, and a woman by the name, I can't remember her name, she was a volunteer at the Wilderness Action Group, and we were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Some gear got damaged, not by environmentalists, it turned out. It was an act of internal industry sabotage and insurance claim. And we just got caught in the wrong place at the wrong time. And um, we passed a loggers four-wheel drive who then um, ran in hot pursuit and we got in a car chase and uh, my car was slammed trying to do a three-point turn. And then we were pulled out of the car and we're all um, beaten up and finally got to Sellers Road, I think in the middle of the night. You were one of the first people I saw, Fiona, and I was just pretty hysterical. I don't know how I even drove there. No lights, car smashed up um, and got to Sellers Road and just so happy to see everyone. Um, um, and as it turns out, those guys got like 40 hours of community service, I think, for that behaviour, which is not what we would have got if we'd done it. One of the things that was interesting about that time in some ways was how kind of used to that kind of thing we got to, in some ways. Like you'd see new people coming in to participate in those actions. And I remember seeing people being quite scared by the environment that they were entering into that somehow over a couple of years, some of us had kind of got kind of used to this prospect of violence, like every night. I remember several blockades where we had people around the clock up watching and we did shifts. We always had, we always had guards. At the yeah, shifts and morning sides and guards. And we just thought that just became normal. But when you look back on it, you're like, oh, my God. Like, that's what mm. was actually going on. Yeah. And that they were the lengths that people were prepared to go to. And that was how inept or corrupt or incompetent we thought the police were. People have talked about the burnout and the tension, and I think that was one of the things that contributed to the really high levels of background stress for everybody um, in this campaign and, you know, trying to save the world and save the forests when you're always looking over your shoulder and always wondering what's around the corner is um, incredibly stressful. I, I don't reckon I still feel like uh, safe uh, camping, like, in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> I always feel like a four-wheel drive with the... Uh you know, headlights is going to come charging into the camp, which they did many times. Headlights, people jumping out of cars, you know, just angry, ripping stuff down. Yeah. 
There was a clan from Sellers Rowing only three days to set up their humble abode All groping creatures to what they bestowed To save the forest from a wood chipping load The winds are definitely the people and like hanging out with the people and the forest and learning all that. <laughs> I think almost everywhere that I blockaded, it's not existing anymore. The losses. <laughs> uh, there's a few people I'd like to mention. Danny, Adam, Nick and Flinny. Yeah, there's been a lot of forest lost. I guess um, I lost my mind. Like that place drives you crazy. I always think we, we know which forests were destroyed and we know which ones were lost in front of our very eyes but there's a hell of a lot of forests that are still standing that would not be still standing if it wasn't for the work Zinni that you and so many other people have done and I think we can we can point to some old growth forests that are still standing because the work that all of us have done um so I think count that as a huge win and then I think the other really big win that we achieved was just the, the networks and the connections, I really think that came out of this era as well of building a nationwide network and alliance of, of people that cared about the same stuff and were protecting forests in their own backyard. East Gippsland was the sort of jewel in the crown for us ecologically as a movement and it really did start to build and accelerate the building of a movement and forest campaigns in Victoria around the country. Like, I do reckon that the fact that you know, we got huge forest outcomes in the Otways, in the Kabobany and Red Gum, in Box Ironbark, and even in parts of the Central Highlands, that Wonkagara, um, that wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for um, the forest protests in East Gippsland. It helped build the strength of the movement. It also created political power, which ricocheted in a forest campaign throughout Victoria um, and elsewhere as well. So... Um, I mean, it was heartbreaking to see what's gone. It, you can't deny that. These are some of the most extraordinary forests anywhere in the world. But um, I think that the movement that was created out of it did have a real impact in successful forest campaigns there and in other parts of the country in the following years. And I can add that the blockades were far from just symbolic. They were incredibly practical and relentless pressure upon the industry. They had very real economic and political impacts um, on the on the industry locally at the time, and that was felt all the way up through the you know th throughout the industry. And the other thing that it did, I think, the, the importance of forest blockades right across the country was that there's no way that in a ma in a majorly city based populations you'd have the degree of ecological awareness of the importance of forests without people actually <clears throat> doing that work, blockading in the forests and getting arrested. Um, it just, it really brought, it brought home to everybody just how critical and important these forests were. So that it just raised the, the political understanding and the ecological awareness of these forests. As a, um, as a small person, I think, um, Going out to Goongra and blockading taught me uh, my politics and taught me so many life skills that are still with me today, yeah. I finally found my people. I learned to feel comfortable in myself. I learned my rights. I'm happy about that. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't really know my rights until I went out there. I learned so much. I learned so much. I learned to cook for a lot of people on a fire. Yeah, how about a fire with soaking wet wood? It was such a um an important part of my my life and laying the foundations of what was important and and making lifelong friends. You know, learning about who I am and and you know what I can cope with, what I can manage, what is um yeah, what 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 are my strengths and what are things that I'm not you know I can I can let go of. <laughs> Um, it was certainly a very pivotal time for me. Just with blockading generally, I, I feel like really so lucky, like so honoured to have been in those forests. And I guess there's still there's still some bits that are there up in New South that I guess that I return to a few times with blockading. So I feel like that's the most useful thing I've ever done in my life, really. Um, 
But I guess, yeah, with that just comes that, that deep grief as well, that we have borne witness to what has been lost in our lifetime. And that still does my head in, which is why I don't I don't work in that area. So I work in palliative care, so I'm dealing with grief every fucking day and it's so much easier than the grief I feel about. And I've had a lot of personal loss as well, but honestly that forest stuff and the when the fires went through in 20, you know, but I feel really, yeah, like so honoured to have had that time and those connections with people from that time, even if they were relatively short, they're just such deep connections because you've had that shared that shared experience. Um, I think it sounds corny, but, you know, that small group of people really can change the world. We just had a go and got together and did what we could and we had a lot of losses, but we also had wins. It's a lifetime's work. It's not easy and it's a lifetime's work. It's it's not something you just do on your uh, summer holidays in between uni semesters. It's, um, you know, in, in your lifetime, you can make a really big difference, not just in 12 months, one summer in East Gibson. Oh, the, the lifelong friends, I think, are the most precious thing that have come from it for me. But this, it's made me reflect on just how in, unique movement-based work is, the training that you get working in a movement with so few resources, fighting, you know, using that sort of collective power against a really powerful multinational industry and the state and federal governments, all the combined resources that they have to to throw at, throw at us. And like learning to do literally everything all at once under those sort of conditions is just unique. You don't get it from university. You don't get it from working, you know, in the NGO sector or anything like that. It's just, it's, um, you, it's, it's incredibly valuable um, training and um, yeah, that you, you, you're learning the politics as you're doing it. And um, yeah, it's incredible. Uh, well, those years changed my life. Like I was a commerce graduate out of, Monash University and the rest of my life has been as an environmental activist. So, and that is the course that set me on that trajectory for the rest of my life. Um, so, and that just made me think that change and activism, um, well, activism could change the world. It made me think that direct action and civil disobedience are absolutely central to any campaign that should be run for environmental or social change. Um, and I just, you know, as people have said, just meeting the most extraordinary people. Like the fact that people who didn't know each other could coalesce in the middle of nowhere to protect forests and work together, work out how to make decisions, work out how to keep each other safe, work out how to feed each other, work out how to get media and win a campaign. I, like it's just astonishing what those kind of um, moments in your life um, do and set a trajectory for an, an alternate way of looking at how the world can operate. So, um, yeah, it fundamentally changed my life for the rest of my life. Tens of thousands of people that have been involved in this over the last 20, 30 years. Mm -hmm. And, like, I work within, like, a public health system and you, you, you take that attitude with you and it, it kind of has a domino effect. And I think what Anthony was saying earlier about how the blockades kind of just increase that environmental awareness, like that that's 100% true. Like I remember um, right in the middle of the COVID pandemic in a public hospital, you know, in Melbourne, um, it, my head of department, so the head consultant of my area, she just said, oh, she said, yeah, COVID's a blip on the radar. The, the real problem is, is uh, climate change. So don't, I guess, underestimate how much I think that that really did uh, increase people's awareness and then all of us that have been involved with this over the years, even if we're not directly still involved, we've taken that with us and still can have influence, you know, just going out into the wider society. On today's episode, you heard from Georgia Snowball, Amelda Eames, Anthony Kelly, Louise Matheson, Marita Wallace, Gavin McFadgen and Zenny Ferntree. Music on today's show was the Gulungook song by John Fraser and the Sellers Road song written by Danny and recorded by Alyssa. Next time, I'll be chatting with the campaigners from the 1997 Gulungook blockade.
You've been listening to Gecko, 30 Years Fighting for Forests, produced at 3CR Community Radio. To listen back to this or other episodes, check out Gecko's website at gecko.org.au or find us at 3cr.org.au. This series was produced by Fiona York at 3CR on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation in Nam, Melbourne, Victoria. There was a clan from settlers rowing only three days to set up their humble abode. All growth and creatures to what they bestowed to save the forest from a wood chipping load. Around a large campfire was where they all sit, conversations of plotting and bitching and wit. This was their home and they wanted to stay, but the cops came along and dragged them away. Rusties and ragamuffins, sparrows and cynics, all whinges and whiners and losers and critics. We say, fuck all your jobs, lifestyles and your ways. These forests are dying in the name of your pay. The DC and R have just gone too far. Their bureaucratic ramblings of crap and blah blah. They can't see the forest, they don't know its worth. The region is failing under scorched earth. These forests are life, these forests are water conservation's the way, so we do what we order. There ain't much left here, man, after the slaughter, only bare earth and silty water. Rusties and ragamuffins, sparrows and cynics, no whinges and whiners and losers and critics. We say, fuck all your jobs, lifestyles, you know where he's. These forests are dying in the name of your pay. Securing your jobs and suburban lives You don't seem to realise your planet's in strife When the water runs out and no food's to be seen It's a little bit late to start thinking green There was a clan from settlers Rowing only three days to set up their humble abode Old growth and creatures to what they bestowed To save the forest from a wood chipping load Rusties and ragamuffins, sparrows and cynics, no whinges and whiners and losers and critics. We say, fuck all your jobs, lifestyles and your ways. These forests are dying in the name of your pay. Rusties and ragamuffins, sparrows and cynics, no whinges and whiners and losers and critics. We say, fuck all your jobs, lifestyles and your ways. These forests are dying in the name of your pay.